Welcome to this week's edition of the Insights Podcast on the Huddle Network. I'm David Campbell. And I'm Don Mills. Don, we had a, a good conversation today with Rick Emberley, the founder of Seasoned Pros, a company that's trying to match, um, I guess we're not calling them retirees, but older workers with with opportunities uh, in management and, and, and services and mentorship roles across the economy in Atlantic Canada and even, even elsewhere in Canada. And I thought it was a good discussion about how we can use or encourage older folks to stay in the workforce longer as part of our uh, increasing challenges around uh, filling the workforce needs in Atlantic Canada. Yeah, one of the most interesting parts of our conversation with Rick uh, was uh, the discussion around attitudes of older workers. Uh, They don't have the same uh, retirement aspirations as perhaps their previous generation did. Uh, There's more interest in remaining engaged. Uh, He talked about a survey he did where where people who registered with his service uh, were asked basically kind of what motivated them. And it wasn't money. Money was number four. Number one was engagement and giving back to the community. And, you know, uh, you know, we've had this discussion before, David, like, you know, people need to have purpose. People who especially have been high achievers uh, all their lives uh, and, and to suddenly stop, uh, you know, waking up every day with a purpose. Uh, this is an outlet for those kinds of people in particular. But, but at the same time, uh, you know, it's only a small part of the answer of the labor force requirements because most of the work that Rick is doing is for interim or, 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 or temporary uh, placement of, of resources. Uh, and, it, and it's useful, uh, but, you know, there's another element of it that I think uh, companies really need to think about. And that is this, uh, when, when you see somebody with, you know, 25 or 30 or 40 years of uh, experience and, 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 and uh, institutional knowledge walking out the door, you should be asking yourself, do I have the resources in place to completely replace that, this individual's knowledge? Because if, if they don't, they should think about alternative uh, arrangements with those people who walk out. Maybe it's a, listen, we'd, we'd like to keep you on some sort of contract for some period of time to do a transition to make sure the transition of knowledge happens. You know, people don't think about this until it's too late. And what I think what we're finding, especially at the professional level, management level, you know, people are just leaving and, and they're taking all that knowledge with them and there's really nothing coming behind to fully replace it. It mean at least companies in a more vulnerable situation, in my opinion. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I think you do companies aren't doing a great job of trying to transfer that institutional knowledge, even if you had older uh, older workers being shadowed by younger workers for a period right. of time before they retire and so on. I think there's there's lots of potential for that. I was a little bit disheartened when Rick said that they're still seeing ageism in the yeah. workplace. I would have thought by now, you know, uh, companies would just be thankful uh, the, that these folks with this experience and and history and talent would want to stay in the workforce. But Rick's actually seeing ageism as as, as a barrier, at least for some, to stay in the workforce longer. Yeah, but you know, it's uh, you know our youth orientation, and you know, it's actually caused by the baby boomer generation who placed such an em- emphasis in the early in their early years on uh, the youth revolution. Uh, that uh, you know that sort of continues. 
But again, uh, as discussed in our, in our conversation with Rick, is that boomers have been uh, setting the tone or the uh, agenda for society since the day they were born. And we will continue to do so until the day we die, David, believe me. <laughs> and uh, well, the one thing that is really interesting is that the baby boom generation is different from previous generations. I think they're looking for, they're looking for more than the traditional uh, definition of retirement. Uh, Rick's company is providing uh, some opportunity for that. And by the way, we've talked about this in the past. You know, we're in a region that is the oldest in Canada, the oldest in Canada by a, quite a bit. We're in a region that has fewer replacement population, those under 15, than anywhere else in the country. We have a labor labor issue. Uh, I've, and I've advocated for some time that we need to tap into older workers who are about to leave the workplace and maybe find new arrangements for them to continue to be associated with the, their employers or other employers because they, they have that experience and knowledge that's so valuable. And it might be on a part-time, full-time basis. They might be, uh, you know, three days a week or mornings or only in the wintertime because I'm busy in the summertime, like really flexible. And, and we just come through a COVID period where work flexibility is now at a premium. It actually makes it easier to have these kind of unique relationships uh, to retain older em employers for longer, as long as they're willing and able to make a contribution uh, to their organization. So I think this is a big opportunity for a lot of companies, uh, a lot of organizations, whether they're private sector or public sector or nonprofits. You know, can we keep a valuable employee who's willing to extend their work beyond the traditional 65, which is just a number, by the way, it's just a number. And, 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 and they, they, they want to just continue to do what they enjoy to do, but maybe on different terms. I think that's a big opportunity. And the numbers are pretty impressive. If Atlantic Canada had Alberta's workforce, workforce participation rate among the 60 plus right now, there'd be another 54,000 people in the workforce. So you talk yeah. about helping to address the the the, the long term solution here. So I think yeah, I think the Rick Emberley's company is doing a, a specific and interesting niche, and the listeners will hear about that in this podcast. But the broader goal of trying to encourage uh, folks to stay in the workforce longer, even in flexible arrangements, working part time or seasonal or 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 on a contract basis, uh, yeah. could go a long way. Uh, to addressing some of our, our, our uh, concerns over the labor market moving forward. 100%. Anyway, Don, without any further ado, here is our conversation with Rick Emberley, founder of Seasoned Pros. On today's Insights Podcast, uh, we're happy to welcome Rick Emberley, uh, the founder of Seasoned Pros. And, and the topic today is really quite interesting. It's one that David and I have uh, discussed in the past, and that is how do we continue to encourage and engage older Atlantic Canadians to stay in the workforce longer than they might have otherwise expected? And how can we take advantage of this labor uh, force uh, to deal with growing labor shortages across the, the region? Rick, welcome to our podcast. Well, thanks for having me. You founded this company uh, about seven years ago, as I understand it, Rick, it was uh, originally called Boomers Plus. I think you obviously were targeting the exit of the boomers from the workplace, which was uh, to match uh, seasoned professionals with short-term or interim roles and, and mentorship uh, opportunities. Uh, talk to us about the genesis for this idea, first of all, when you launched it, uh, kind of, and uh, seven years in, kind of where you are. 
I'll try and compress it. The uh, I guess the genesis of it was me thinking about the uh, me exiting my own business, <laughs> which yeah. I'd been in, which I'd been involved in for some thirty five years, and 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 just sort of saying to myself, okay, are you really going to s- sort of go home at five o'clock on a Friday afternoon, and that's the end of this? <clears throat> and I just started thinking about, okay, well, what will I do? How <clears throat> how will I do it? When? And so on, and that was the initial uh, thought behind it. I think the uh, the conceptual name of the business coming out of the gate was BoomersWork.com, and we evolved that into Boomers Plus, mostly because of, frankly, the demographics that were slowly but surely getting absorbed into our database, and uh, in more recent times, mostly because of that continuing change and the arrival of uh, of so-called Gen Xers into our database, uh, we thought it was more appropriate to, uh, well, change the name into seasoned pros. The way I would compress the sort of, sometimes my elevator speeches that were e-harmony for employers. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is fundamentally a, an online service uh, driven from a database that we developed and the technology platform that allows employers of any description and we've done work for not-for-profits. We've done work for all sorts of institutions of one description and another, and just about any business category that you could dream of. Uh, they contact us looking for individuals to fill what is often referred to in the literature these days as gigs, you know, the gig economy, the idea that they have a, an emerging or an immediate gap in their workforce and they're looking to fill it. It might be a transitional thing. So very, very few of the positions that we fill from our database are full-time, long-term employment positions. It is heavily concentrated on interim roles that could run from as little as a few weeks, but more likely a number of months. It could be what I would call part-time, where somebody is going to uh, you know, stay employed, but it might be three days a week over a longer period of time, even several, <coughs> excuse me, several years. And the database sitting at the moment is north of 10,000 individuals, the vast majority of whom are based in Atlantic Canada, because, of course, we started the business in Halifax. But there's well over three or 4,000 in Ontario, for instance. And there's a sprinkling of individuals from here to Vancouver and, and back. Uh, they describe themselves, uh, actually, they don't like to use, uh, they don't like it when we call them retirees, to be honest. <laughs> it's just not the mindset. And I think the other distinction I would make for you at the outset here, Don, is that uh, when, you, when you look at the types of individuals, we are very heavily concentrated on individuals who have sort of successfully worked their way into at least supervisory management and executive types of roles. Trades are typically not an area of much focus or concentration for us. So I hope I compressed the the background reasonably well for you. No, that's great. Rick, uh, by the way, for our listeners, um, uh, people listening in, a little bit about Rick's background, it would be interesting to hear. Rick and I were friendly competitors for uh, most of our careers, weren't we, Rick? Tell us about yeah. the, that that period of your life. 
Uh, well, it ran about 35 plus years. And yes, uh, we were. And yes, we would wave at each other when we passed on the street. <laughs> <laughs> so while you were running one uh, wonderfully successful uh, <coughs> marketing research and public opinion research business, uh, I was involved in, in one as well and also involved in a, an advertising public relations and public affairs consulting group. Actually, we were exceptionally good and friendly competitors. We and, were. Uh, yeah, I always appreciated uh, that we had a, a nice relationship, Rick. That background is actually obviously why you ended up in, the, in this new business, because uh, you, were, like me, were looking at demographics and population numbers. Uh, you know, we were ringing the alarm bells long before anybody else in this region about what was happening here. Um, yeah. uh, maybe you could give our listeners a, a sort of a sense of how many people will be exiting um, the workplace uh, over the next few years? Let, let's, let's concentrate on, uh, on Atlantic Canada for now. Sure. Well, if you concentrate on Atlantic Canada, uh, you used a number, uh, I believe, there early on <clears throat> that suggested that we are in approaching the three quarters of a million uh, individuals uh, by the time we hit 2030. I think that is, a, 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 frankly, it's an underestimate. Uh, and there's a whole bunch of reasons why I think the number is, if we're using, say, 2030 as a bit of a benchmark year, I'd be very surprised if you track the data and see the pace at which the data <clears throat> is shifting and uh, work attitudes are shifting, yes. which is going to factor into this in a big way. Uh, and we're almost changing up the, the definition of retirement. But if we stick to the classic definition, I honestly believe if you look at the data, and I've run this back past some people, you know, like for instance, APEC and some other organizations that are trying to keep an eye on, I think the number uh, done is definitely going to be hovering in the 1 million range by the time we hit 2030. So uh, what that suggests to me that we're probably underestimating it by some uh, orders of maybe 12 to 15 percent yeah. at the moment. Now, uh, uh, what, as I just mentioned, one of the things that I think is, uh, is shifting and accelerating, if that's the best word, uh, that trend is the attitudinal thing on, re on, on retirement. Yeah. And... Um, the, uh, the demographics and the uh, people that represent the so-called 50 plus or 55 plus and, and so on and so forth. You know, you can't discount uh, even uh, the health implications, Don. You know, uh, when Mr. Bismarck decided that, you know, 65 was going to be the uh, retirement age, the expected life, ex life expectancy was 62. <laughs> you know? Uh, and we're still talking about a retirement age, often at least, as 65, and now we're expected to live to be 83. Something's got to give there, and it is one of the biggest motivations that we find from the people in our database, is that they, uh, they recognize that they've got 15 or 20 years in front of them. Yeah. I'm sorry, you can only squeeze in so many games ago. 
Yeah, I just uh, I just want to uh, make a side note here because uh, you know looking at boomers as an example, boomers, which you and I are both in that category, yeah. have uh, you know have redefined uh, living yeah. uh, throughout their li- lifetimes, and now it seems like boomers are going to redefine the definition of retirement, mm-hmm. and I you know. Um, they don't see themselves as retiring in the traditional sense. In fact, mm-hmm. they will tell you that I like to be, you know, when people say, Are you, uh, how's retirement going? I, I never respond to that in a yeah. friendly way. I always say, actually, I'm repurposed in life. I'm not retired because yeah. I think that that's what you're talking about, attitudes, right? Yes, totally. And and uh, like I say, the, the motivation for me personally to trigger this business uh, was exactly that. I just could not imagine myself out 15 or 20 years in that classic, you know, retirement mode. Exactly. Yeah. Just good. The, the other thing that we're noticing in, in, in our data in recent times that might uh, be a little bit interesting to your listeners and whatnot is that um, <clears throat> we're seeing the average age of people that are registering into our database is actually coming down, right? So if I were talking to you two or three years ago, it was in the very, the average age would have been probably even in the low 60s, like 61 or 62, and it's now 57 or 58. And we're also seeing an ever increasing number of females in the database. And I think that's, pretty easy to explain that because slowly but surely females have risen into more and more management and executive type roles and so on and so forth. And that's been the focus of our recruitment, right? Right. So, so Rick, why, what's your theory as to why the average age is getting younger? Because you would think that people are staying in the workforce longer or staying in these permanent roles longer. So are you saying more and more people are, are, pre-retiring i think that was your word yeah pre-retiring 50s Hmm. yeah uh one of the things that we picked up we did some work on this about a year and a half maybe even two years ago one uh, we started to know this slight i mean it's not a plunge in the you know in the timeline but we saw saw it sinking down sinking down we started to pick up on on females more and more and more in the database uh One of the things that I'm triggering that, and it's a, it's an excellent uh, question, David, um, is that is back on this attitudinal point that Don was making just a few minutes ago, about so you got two professionals in a household. Uh, they've been plugging in, uh, you know, they've all uh, successfully developed their careers over a period of twenty years, maybe even more, and. All of a sudden, uh, one you know, one's a lawyer and one's an accountant. You know, that almost sounds like a bit of a cliche, but anyway, and they sort of wake up in their very late forties and early fifties, and the kids just all left. So now they're you know they're the the famous sort of dinks I think they used to call them was it double income no kids uh, environment, and they're looking at each other and saying, do we really need this? <laughs> So one of them continues in their traditional sort of workplace environment and another starts to look for options. And one of those options is, you know, not 
full-time, some form of part-time or temporary uh, employment. Uh, I think we're seeing the early elements of that, you know, in, in our experience, uh, sort of woven into our database, I'll call it. And it's back to the point I think uh, Don raised a few moments ago, which is the attitude towards work itself is changing. And I mean, we had one of our strongest years ever. We're still a small early stage company. We had one of our strongest years ever through COVID because organizations, businesses and the like started to get comfortable with virtual workers. And we at one point through uh, most of the COVID period, we also provide advisors and mentors as part of the service that we have available we would have had well in excess of 200 mentors working across Atlantic Canada, mostly in two areas, primarily with very small businesses that were really struggling with the whole crisis and so on around COVID. And the other category <clears throat> that sort of emerged, uh, you know, emerged through that period was that uh, a lot of not-for-profit type organizations were really struggling through that period as well. But we also had early stage companies and startups who, you know, normally would tap into the regular workforce marketplace. And they were just, like I say, I think we may have topped out at one point. We had as many as 235 or so mentors and advisors working across Atlantic Canada. And by the way, some of those mentors were far away as Vancouver. So I wanted to ask you, like Don and I, our preoccupation is making sure Atlanta Canada has the labor force it needs to continue to grow the economy over the next 20 or 30 years. And one of the sources of that labor, there's many, immigration and so on, but one of the sources is trying to convince people to continue in the workforce beyond their sort of normal retirement years. But I guess I'd like you to talk about that a little bit in the sense that are we trying to convince people to just put off retiring? Or it sounds like you're saying that people should still kind of retire or at least evolve from maybe these full-time year-round jobs to a more hybrid, part-time, project-based kind of well, career. So what, what are you actually proposing here, Rick? Well, I think it's part of the solution, David. You know, uh, no, uh, every uh, every workplace circumstance cannot manage itself around, you know, uh, we'll call it part-time or temporary or interim uh, style employees. But there is a huge number that can. So all we would be suggesting coming at it from our perspective is that it represents one of several tools that, frankly, governments and other organizations are going to have to deploy if we're going to come within spitting distance of what's being projected in terms of need, economic growth, <coughs> you know, talent development, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, for instance, one of our active customers, I'll call it, clients, uh, over the past year or two, in Nova Scotia, they have what they call sector councils, right? You may be familiar with with them. Mm -hmm. So they have like an automotive sector council and a forestry sector council and a tourism sector council. <clears throat> I think there's a total of seven of them. 
and to the point I think you're, uh, you're uh, raising here is that we noticed pretty dramatic differences when we were dealing with some of these sector councils. Some of them bought into what we have to offer very quickly and it fit their industry or their business sector. Others, not so much so because they still require by the nature of the business or the industry and that sort of permanent full-time come in at nine, go home at five type of person. And they can't afford to have money hanging around for three or four months. You know, they need them for 10 or 12 or whatever full-time so-called. Mm. So it's a piece of, uh, I sometimes refer to it as three-legged stool. Governments and businesses and organizations are going to have to figure out how to hold people longer. Absolute necessity. The second stool is talent, development, and training. Better get your head wrapped around that one real fast. And maybe there, uh, maybe there is a four, maybe this is a four-legged one now that I think about it. The third one I was going to mention is the type of thing that we're up to. And I guess the fourth one you've just mentioned, and that is the whole immigration piece of the puzzle. Yeah. So I, I wanted to ask you, though, to help us understand the case for people staying in the workforce past their normal retirement age. So we're living in Atlantic Canada. We have a relatively low cost of living, particularly in rural areas. If, a, if I don't have a mortgage, I can live pretty comfortable on my CPP, my old age security. Maybe I've got some RRSPs. So, and plus everybody celebrates retirement, right? They look forward to it. And you guys seem to be uh, um, a counterpoint to that, but a lot of people mark the date on their calendar that they're going to retire and they're going to play golf and they're going to live in the cottage. So what is the case? You know, I know Don's doing it because he's got to earn the money because, you know, he had, he had, a, he had a tough sort of working career. But what about yeah, the yeah. rest of us? What's the case for working beyond normal retirement age? Uh, engagement. Uh, we, we surveyed about, uh, before we even launched this business, this won't be a surprise to Don, <laughs> we actually surveyed 1,250 boomers in Atlantic Canada. And we posted a bunch of questions to them about their attitudes and opinions and feelings on retirement. Money was, I think, was number four. Okay? The first one was engagement. Keeping keep in the mind, stimulated, want to. The second one, which was kind of interesting, was a rather strong sense of wanting to give back give back to their communities, give back to their professions, whatever the case might be. And the thing that beat out uh, money by a very small margin was I got kicked out of the house. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, like I say, money is not the hook here. Money is not the hook. It's a piece of the puzzle, sure. I mean, you know. Don, being as poor as he is, needs every penny he can find. <laughs> okay, guys, I got roasted last week. I don't need to be roasted again. Come on, give yeah. me a break. <laughs> well, if it wasn't for COVID, I, I would have been there, Don. <laughs> but I, listen, I want to pick up on that point yeah. because, uh, like, uh, I really, uh, I really believe this is that uh, it, the kinds of people that you're kind of rec to recruit uh, to uh, provide resources are people who are professionals, basically, yes. 
spent their whole whole year, you know, at a fairly high level of achievement and uh, uh, and um, engagement for sure. Um, and, and I think what people and, and and this is a message that we've been trying to get out subtly or not, is that people need to be, be prepared for when they leave their full-time uh, employment career because uh, the most, one of the most important things that happens to high-achieving individuals is that they wake up, wake up every day with a purpose, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And if they don't have the purpose after they leave their full-time employment, there is a gaping hole that's got to be filled with something. And, and you know, looking at my cohorts, you know, a lot of people are unprepared for that. And they end up actually entering an unhappy phase of their life when they should be entering a happy phase of their life. Yeah. And I think that gets back to attitudes again, Rick. And and I, I, again, this is a, this is a defining thing for, for boomers that they look at boomers have always looked at things slightly different than any other generation. Uh, They're coming, they're coming into this period of life at probably the, the healthiest generation ever to reach this point of their lives. I'm not even sure the next generation will be as healthy, honestly, uh, given what, what we're seeing in the world. So it, it, this is a really important uh, understanding for people in the workplace who are looking to, to supplement, I guess is the best word, supplement the workforce with people who have experiences and skills uh, and who are prepared to work uh, under some flexible, variable arrangement, right? Yeah. Well, uh, the, 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 sh- the shock of, of COVID is that I think we were probably evolving into that flexible workplace, maybe painfully, slowly, pre-COVID. Right. It just got accelerated because it, it had to become part of, of, the, uh, of the solution. But, yeah. you know, I, when I think about this, I try not to be, I, I guess you would call it uh, overly prescriptive. Because clearly, there's a number of people out there that will cons- contain or continue to view uh, retirement in what we'll call the classic definition. You know, the, the Friday comes, thanks, see you later, and off I go. And there's a, and if you really want to stay engaged, you don't have to work. I mean, you can go and do hundreds of volunteer things. Sure, you know that motivates you to get out of bed in the morning. But like I say, when we did our survey, uh, the motivation factor at the top of the list was engagement with their profession, if you like, you know, or or what they did within the context of their career. People want to continue to use their minds for as long as they're able to. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, you know, it makes for uh, healthier living. Uh, way healthier mental health living for sure and and it probably you know makes you more active which is probably good for your physical health as well so there are benefits i think to continuing to be engaged as you as you reference Uh, we want to talk about the kind of disincentives you're seeing in your businesses for people you know uh, sort of signing on to uh, the service that you're offering organizations. Yeah. Um, you know, are, are there things like, uh, what, what are the disincentives, first of all, that you're seeing? Why, why do people who otherwise should do this, could do this, are really not doing this? Uh, well, uh, clearly there are, you know, financial implications and there are things that both, uh, you know, pension plans and programs and 
gov government uh, pr uh, programs and policies and so on act as a bit of a disincentive, uh, shall we say. Mm. Uh, that doesn't emerge as the biggest problem uh, that we run into. The biggest problem that we encounter, believe it or not, is ageism. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Mm. Um, this sort of hesitancy, uh, and it's, you know, it's kind of woven into the culture, if I could put it that way, that, you know, well, look, we've been for 50 plus years now, we've been telling people that they're not really of a great value by the time you hit 65 anyway. Now you're trying to tell me I'm going to hire you back for three or six months, you know, and you're telling me you're 69 or 71 or whatever the case might be. Uh, forward thinking organizations, and there's lots of them out there, uh, sort of get past that. But I'm telling you, it is with regularity that the single biggest hurdle that we encounter is, is ageism as a, as a disincentive. Uh, now, it's not a disincentive, obviously, to the people that are signing in to our system. <laughs> right. No, but it is a disincentive to the environment or within the environment in which they're hoping or wanting to operate. Absolutely. Yeah. The, uh, the, uh, another little, I guess you might call it, data point that, that might strike you as somewhat interesting uh, is that we also track... Uh, we do not operate like, you know, you're a traditional executive search type firm. The remuneration that our clients pay us is much more structured around what we'll call fixed fee. So what you're paying the person that you hire through our system has nothing to do with what we get paid. Right. Okay. The reason I'm mentioning that is that when we track the arrangements that are that are, you know flow from the I guess you might call it the negotiation between employer and employee that our people are out there consistently working in the marketplace for seventy five to eighty percent of what you would normally expect them to be paid. So you know if you're trying to fill a CFO job that typically would attract one hundred fifty or two hundred thousand dollars you can be pretty well guaranteed that a very consistent on a very consistent basis that the individuals that are sort of resident within our database again because they're not primarily motivated by money are prepared to you know sign on to temporary gigs and and greater flexibility with workplace flexibility and frankly get paid less uh, I'd like to know kind of if you can tell us kind of where the greatest demand is for the service right now. Are there kind of sp sectors or jobs, uh, specific jobs that uh, seem to have to be in the highest demand? Uh, yes, I would say there's uh, pro probably three areas that we see the greatest demand. Uh, uh, finance at almost, you know, any level in, in any business or organizational sector. Uh, is a very consistent area of demand. Uh, anything to do with marketing communications, and I'll come to the sectoral uh, uh, elements of this in just a moment. Uh, <clears throat> a, a lot of consistent demand in engineering uh, and 
in the engineering area, a lot of the demand is very specifically over what you would call the construction development area. Believe it or not, we get a fairly consistent demand in the HR field. Uh, now, within any of those classifications, I'll call it, there are sort of, I'll call it micro breakdowns. So, you know, as I just mentioned, primarily the engineers that uh, people are seeking are civil engineers, you know, electrical engineers and things like that. We're starting to see a lift in the tech area, and that seems to be driven mostly by what is pretty evident, I think, across our marketplace in recent times, and that is the the evolution, you know, the so-called ecosystem, right? The startups, IT type, uh, you know, tech uh, businesses and so on. So we see pretty regular, uh, pretty regular demand on that. But then, you know, we have uh, organizations coming to us, uh, Don, asking us if we can go find subject matter experts to join their board, both private sort of companies and not-for-profits and, and, and whatnot. They'll, can you find us... Uh, can you find us a lawyer who, you know, did a lot of real estate <laughs> right. uh, legal work in their career? Most people would have been surprised to know that we even have lawyers in our database, but we have lots of them. Uh, I, I just wanted to ask you a little, again, I'm trying to focus in on what you see the perceived growth in this segment of the labor market would might be. Where you are now, for instance, and where you anticipate being with the with the demand over the let's say the next 10 years because next 10 years is you know it's going to be a it's going to be a challenging time i think in terms of the labor market in, in across the country and, and in atlantic canada yeah well maybe even as you say even more so just because of the demographics even more so in, in atlantic canada than in, in some other places well we talked at the outset about the you know the demographics of the numbers of so-called retirees and and boomers that will be moving out of the workforce. There was an interesting piece of uh, data that I was uh, I came upon recently. I'm pretty sure the source was actually APEC. That if you you only had to go back about a half a dozen years or so, and for every ten thousand people leaving the work workforce, twenty were coming in, <laughs> and now it's almost the virtual opposite to that almost the virtual opposite of it. I wish I had the number here directly in front of me, but I, I know that for every 20,000 that are now leaving, it's like seven or 8,000 are entering. You know? So we're, uh, the, the gap is growing by a, at least 10 or 12,000 positions yeah. a year. Yeah. Well, it doesn't take a rocket scientist or, you know, to, to do the math on that kind of uh, stuff. And as I said, I think to David a few minutes ago, what we're up to is a piece of the answer. It's just a piece. And if the, if governments don't get their heads wrapped around this issue, we're uh, frankly going to be up the proverbial creek in about three to five years. Yeah, there's probably another market opportunity for you too, Rick, and that is people who might be willing to retire from the current job they have, but have interest in continuing for couple more years with another outfit to to uh, you know just to keep active yeah well uh, you know i mean we've seen it all over the as we've tried to evolve the business and figure out the math if you like and and the data and examine it and and whatnot uh we, we are noting for instance that if i just retired as a ceo 
of a company and I had been in that position for 10 or 12 or maybe 15 or 20 years, when, when you, they step into our database, they're not on the hunt for another CEO job. Matter of fact, they almost don't want another CEO job. You know, they want it to come down a notch or two right. and, you, and use that skill and everything they have to coach and mentor and all that sort of thing. Right? I, I remember not too distant past that we had a recently retired senior VP of a major Canadian bank. Uh, and, um, you know, I'm obviously you can find out in the newspaper what kinds of monies individuals like that make. Well, we had uh, a, a client in, uh, in New Brunswick, a, uh, a credit union with a, probably a, a, what you would call in normal circumstance, uh, level two or level three executive position that they had to plug a hole for six or so months. Well, this guy who was living in Ontario <laughs> uh, had a brother-in-law or something in Fredericton, and he moved to, to take that uh, position, right? Physically, he moved. So the, the motivations here are pretty intriguing. If, uh, you know, one of the things we're hoping to do, by the way, which you'd probably appreciate as well, one of the things we're hoping to do early this fall is some focus groups. We're going to pull in some of the people <clears throat> that have actually been in our system a while, have worked a few gigs, <laughs> and sit sit them down and really pick their brains and say, right. hey, guys, why, when, how? Yeah. Uh, could, could I just ask one other question that just occurred to me, uh, uh, and that is related to the types of people who are registering to your service. Yeah. Are they predominantly from the private sector or, or are you getting some from the public sector as well? Oh, yes. No, we have. Uh, I know there. <clears throat> I can't remember the circumstance that caused us to check it at the time. But not too many months ago, we did a scan. And the last three top public sector bureaucrats, you know, retired bureaucrats in Nova Scotia were all sitting in our database. Hmm. Wow. Last three. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I, the only sector that we, I would say, I don't know if deficient is the right word, but the, the weakest sector that we find is healthcare. And I think the reason, part of the reason at least, we, we, uh, the, the purely administrative side of healthcare, we have decent representation. I think part of the reason why elsewhere across the healthcare system is that people fade into retirement. You know, right. if you happen to be a doctor or a dentist or, you know, practice the nurse and so on, you don't have a retirement day. You know, no. you, go to, you go to a three-day work, uh, you know, work week or, or whatever. That's just pure speculation on my part, though. But it's, mm -hmm. it's the weakest, uh, weakest sector or segment in our database. Rick, I wanted to ask you, some have suggested that government should push back the age of public pension availability till 68 or even 70. And in fact, when public pensions were introduced in Canada almost 100 years ago, the retirement age for that was 70. Is this one idea to keep workers in the workforce longer? Should we actually raise the age when these public pensions kick in? Uh -huh. Well, I mean, my personal personal opinion is no. <laughs> and, uh, and and my motivation 
or, or uh, I think what sort of motivates me to think that way is, you, you know, you don't only want an active workforce, you want a healthy workforce. And I don't mean physically. I mean, you don't want people who are in quotes forced into, a, you know, a work circumstance, which for whatever combination of reasons, you know, they find objectionable or, you know, not in keeping. So why was it that my brother, who's three years older than me, got to do this? And now all of a sudden, you know, I got to wait another three years. I, I don't know. It just it doesn't resonate with me. But, the, the, you know, a, a, a sound thinking economist or whatever might be able to map out an argument in favor of it. I, I just don't buy into it. Yeah, I'm not sure either. I mean, I think really we're talking about people voluntarily deciding that they want to stay in the workforce on a more flexible basis uh, after a traditional work. uh, Well, I I think I'm I'm probably biased because everybody of the 10,000 plus individuals that are sitting in our database, they're all there by choice. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. know, they they saw an online message from us or their brother-in-law told them or whatever the case might be. And that's how they ended up there. Uh, So uh, I certainly wouldn't uh, wouldn't favor that. I think there's much more creative and stimulating ways that uh, that governments and various institutions could address the problem, frankly. So I wanted to ask you what companies and organizations are doing to try and encourage uh, older workers to stay in the workforce. You talked about ageism earlier. Are some companies and organizations trying to address ageism in the workplace? Are there other things, certain benefits that would be enticing to older work workers? Are they more interested in working from home? Like what, what are companies doing to encourage uh, older workers to stay in the workforce longer? Well, I think the, one of the biggest challenges probably throughout the workforce at the moment is so-called retention because of companies can think of fruitful or beneficial ways and uh, to cause people to stay on. We see evidence of that on a very consistent uh, basis. And, uh, you know, I think the, uh, the, the point about the ageism comment that I, I made earlier is that c- circumstance is already changing that. Like we see a difference in it even today than we would have detected as recently as three or four, certainly four or five years ago. It was way more common. We would have uh, situated, even though when we introduced ourselves to a client and said, look, our database is comprised of people of, you know, this rough, this age, the average age is such and such, and they would still ask to use our service. The minute that you put the resume in front of them, and they looked at it and said, oh, my, 69. See you later. We do not see that anywhere near as much today as we w- would be seeing it. So, I, you know, the creativity over on the business side itself or organizational side, uh, there's a lot of effort, I know, going into it. I, I wouldn't pretend to be even mildly expert in it, but I know there's a lot of effort going on amongst certain, you know, government agencies, departments and institutions on what they call talent development. 
uh, these days that they see as a part of the solution going forward. Uh, but, you know, what kinds of actual incentives are out there from a retention perspective, uh, David? I, I really don't have a lot of you know, sort of inside knowledge on that, to be honest. But some, some again, you know, if you look at the range of things that are going to have to line up here to come even close to meeting our workforce need, that's definitely one of them for sure. Rick, I, I want to push you a little bit more. I know you, you're, you've got the numbers. You, you won't share them with us, but I'm going to push you anyway. Um, like if you look at the, your, the, you know, your business, you know, you, you refer to it as kind of in the early stages of development. So uh, tell me about the dream for the company. What would be success in five or 10 years for you in terms of the volume of business or the number of people placed or, you know, do you have some metrics that you, that you are trying to target? Yes, we do. And uh, the only reason I'm even mildly uh, careful with that is, of course, I have shareholders. <laughs> uh, but um, we think that the Atlantic Canadian marketplace, I mean, is all uh, fundamentally uh, our forecasts are based on our pricing too, right? Right now, our pricing, I don't mind sharing, is uh, because if, if you were uh, calling me tomorrow and trying to fill a job, I'd tell you anyway. Uh, um, at the at its low end, it hovers around five thousand dollars. If an organization comes in, that's typically that low end is typically uh, uh, and almost universally is a pricing directed at uh, you know small organizations, not for profits and things like that. Large enterprise style uh, companies, depending on the nature of the, I'll call it search or the match that we're trying to make, could top out in the sort of twelve to fifteen thousand dollar range. And, and so for that fee, they get they get a, they get uh, your top three or four recommendations. Is that is that the way it works? Yes. And and by the way, if we don't deliver those qualified candidates, and we have a definition for qualified, right. Uh, candidates that tick a bunch of the boxes that we've agreed on with them yeah. don't get a bill from us. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, the, but the just other... again, uh, let me, let me just, so yeah. obviously you have a, you have a growth target in your revenue number. Can you, can you talk at percentage wise? I don't need the number. I'll, but... I'll tell you right now. We think that the, uh, that the uh, Atlantic Canadian market is a two plus million dollar marketplace. Okay. And, uh, and as, as you know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to say, well, uh, the other markets, and we do have some experience, albeit limited in Ontario in particular. <clears throat> so the Ontario marketplace is 10 to 15, depending on what metric you want to use, is 10 to 15 times the size yeah. of Atlantic Canada. Right. <clears throat> right. You know, the GDP uh, the size of the workforce, et cetera, et cetera, you know, and, and we ran all of those metrics. So if I, if I think I'm near accurate saying it's a $2 million market in Atlantic Canada, it's a $20 million market in the plus in Ontario. And then you can roll it out beyond that. And because it's an online business, essentially done, there are no geographic, technically no geographic boundaries, right? Yeah. But is this something you could franchise? We actually have a model that we've built for franchising. 
Right. Uh, actually, we call it licensing, and there's uh, some subtleties and legal differences, but we don't yeah. need to get into that. Yeah. yeah. But it is, yeah. That would be a growth strategy that would be that could accelerate the business, right? So, yeah. If you're ever going to tackle a market the size of the United States, you know, right. rather rather than pick away at it in in geographic elements, uh, you franchise, yeah. you know, or license. Yeah, it makes right. sense. But uh, you know, typically our our pricing is, I would say, uh, on average, it's thirty. Uh, maybe even a little less, 20, 25 to say 40% of what the marketplace has been historically paying for, you know, uh, executive search style services. Right. Yeah. So obviously for that to work, uh, it, it's got to be for a certain level of engage, engagement that makes sense. If you're looking for somebody for a few days, that's much different than looking for somebody for a few months to take on a role, right? And, and and that's why it's a scale of pricing. It's not right. a, you know, a fixed price, but it is not a price that's related to remuneration of the individual. Yeah, people negotiate their own deals. That's yes. What, yes. Okay. And, and, the, and the only time we engage there is because we we work a fair bit with relatively small organizations that don't have robust HR departments and things of that nature. Right. So we, we might have to help out the business owner or the general manager, you know, just to help them yes. through the process. That's all. Gotcha. Thanks. Yeah. Rick, I'm working with a government department and right now on a project, and I'm absolutely shocked. The, the people that I'm interviewing, the older people, many of them are, are either retiring within the next few weeks or the next few months and taking, you know, in some cases, 30 to 40 years of of very specific subject matter expertise out the door and they're hiring kids right out of school or right out of university or college mm -hmm. to take their place. Yeah. And I'm thinking what's going on there in terms of knowledge transfer. I know your system. I know you talk about mentoring as one of the services. Yeah. Can you explain a little bit about how that works? Is that, is that similar to coming into say a management role where they come in, they spend a few months mentoring the younger staff or, what do you mean when you talk about mentoring as a service? Well, uh, we use what I would call the uh, the classic definition. Uh, the point you're making is an absolutely excellent one. It also plays back to a question that you had asked a few minutes ago about the fact that the uh, you know you've got people leaving the uh, leaving the workforce at, at a pace that we've never ever seen before. Obviously. Uh, I would say that uh, 25 to 30% of the positions that we are asked to fill are in response to the issue that you just mentioned. Hmm. So in other words, you know, you're, it's, uh, I guess the often used, overused analogy maybe is somebody gets hit by the bus, right? The, the bus is that a position is vacated on relatively short notice for whatever the combination of reasons may be. And there's this huge knowledge, institutional knowledge gap left. We put people into positions then that can nurture and take on, you know, the next level down or the next two or three levels down. And that's not permanent employment often. You know, you might be able to do that over a three, four, six, or occasionally an eight or 12 month period. 
or you might only need to be on site or interacting with the employee, uh, you know, two or three days a week as opposed to nine to five, five days a week sort of thing, right? That would represent, that type of circumstance would represent a huge portion of the placements we do. People trying to plug up those holes, those temporary holes. The other type of situation that emerges a lot that we plug is the idea that, you know, you got to say a small, medium-sized enterprise and they have some sudden growth and they just don't have the capacity to deal with, you know, with whatever that growth might be. Right. And uh, so please, can you go find us a project management type person? Let me give you a, 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 and and maybe might be helpful for the audience here, an example. So uh, I think both of you, Don in particular, will be aware that a a few years ago, around the time that we were getting this business off the ground, the Discovery Center decides he needs a new or wants a new facility in downtown Halifax. It's a 20-odd million dollar project that a not-for-profit organization is about to undertake. They haven't got anything near the type of competence within their, you know, <clears throat> within their management team and their team generally to, to take on that. Four days. We found them a project manager to help them put together a $23 million rebuild of a science center in four days. And the gentleman that took the position still curses on me actually because he thought he was getting a four-day week and it turned into a six or six day week but anyway that's <laughs> neither that's neither no but seriously the individual had retired within weeks almost certainly only a few months as the vice president of construction and engineering with one of the biggest employers in the region you know yeah. well i mean it's like the piece of magic almost now it doesn't always work that well but, but it does work. It sounds like an ideal example. I, my last question for you is what's reasonable here. Do you think people, uh, Henry Kissinger is just wrote a book. He's 98. He's doing the public uh, circuit, talking to folks. What's reasonable here? Do you expect that people will be working, large numbers of people will be working well into their 80s if, if, if they want to? Uh, if they want to. And, and you, you just hit the nail on the head. It's the if you want to. And and one of the dangers here, if there isn't a sort of a multi-headed approach to this thing, there isn't a government policy, in my view, you know, a single-minded government policy that fixes this thing. There's five or six elements attached to the fix, you know, and, and we've touched on most of them in this conversation, but I don't think all, and I don't have the knowledge or the skill to touch on them all. But, uh, you know, the, the immigration thing is, is definitely a factor. No, no question about it. The kinds of stuff that we're doing is a factor. Workforce development, talent development, retention is a factor. And yes, there may well be some government policies well thought out, hopefully, that are an encouragement to remain active in the workforce as opposed to, uh, you know, a discouragement to do so. And I Don, think- any final questions for Rick? No, I just want to thank Rick for uh, joining us today on the Insights Podcast and to uh, remind anybody out there in the position of uh, exiting their workplace that there are uh, opportunities for people who want to stay engaged and uh, 
uh, Rick's company is an option for them to consider. So, uh, Rick, thanks very much for telling us your story. Yeah, no, thoroughly enjoyed it, guys. I really did appreciate the time. You've been listening to the latest episode of the Huddle Insights Podcast. Mark Legere helped produce this episode. You can follow the show and listen to past episodes on podcast platforms like Apple and Spotify. And if you've enjoyed listening, please recommend the show to a friend. Don and David will be back again next week.